I really help the CEOs I work with align with and connect to their values and their purpose. Because inside, you know, above and beyond all the corporate stuff and all the business stuff and the things we have to do, the CEOs I work with, and I feel like all leaders and I think all people have something inside of them that shows them their North Star. It gets lost in the muck and mire of every day. And I help them strip that back and just identify for themselves what's my core purpose and what are my core values. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self, or the true self. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked with Armin Mulavi about the difference between authenticity and hyper-authenticity, how to manage a global team remotely, and what the travel industry is expecting coming out of the pandemic. Today, we have a chance to take a different look at balancing authenticity as a leader. Our guest, Aliza Cohn, was named the number one startup coach at the Thinkers 50 Marshall Goldmiss Award, which in the industry are referred to as the Oscars of coaching. In our conversation, Aliza shares with us how she made the decision to leave corporate America and start her own business. She covered some of the factors that people who want to take a similar step should take into consideration. Then, since Aliza spent over 20 years coaching CEOs and founders, we dug into her expertise to find out how CEOs can navigate difficult trade-offs while staying true to their values. I also wanted to take advantage of the fact that Aliza is talking on a regular basis to a lot of CEOs. So I asked her, what is top of mind of founders and CEOs as we enter into this post-pandemic recovery? Aliza has also a new book called From Startup to Grown Up, which is coming out next October. So she gave us a little sneak preview of one of the stories in the book. Finally, she shared a great perspective about how one of her personal passions has helped her become an even better coach. So here's our conversation. Hi, Elisa. Why don't we start by introducing you to our listeners? Tell us about your background, your journey, and some of the key moments in your career that have gotten you to where you are now. Sure. Well, it's been, a, you know, like many people, a checkered journey. I've been an executive coach for 20 years. Prior to that, I was the head of head of strategy and of one startup and the CFO of another startup. Prior to that, I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers and also at the Monitor Group as a strategy consultant. So, and then prior to that, I was in, in the nonprofit world. So as you can see, it's sort of a lot of different experiences that I really think come together in helping be a great coach for people all across the board. For me, after I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers for a little while, I kind of realized this is not my thing. It's too big, the firm. The firm, which was a great experience and a great firm, and I learned a ton, it wasn't like suited for me. So I had to really think about like, so what's my thing? What am I going to do? And the music in my head was to make a difference, to make a difference. That was like the chant I had in my head. And I really wanted like the work of my hands to matter. So I was sought out, what's that mean? And I looked for a lot of different things. And finally at a conference, I met a coach and I was like, that is what I want to do. It's like violins played. That's what I want to do. And that's what set me off on the, my course of becoming a coach. 
okay, that's great. So in your journey from working in the corporate world to going out on your own, for our listeners who may be considering a similar move, what were some of the key steps that you had to take to convince yourself that this was the right path for you? You have to be able to recognize, or I'll speak for myself, like I had to recognize I will be okay. And that's something that I talk to my clients about all the time. Like you have to have an inner experience of I will be okay no matter what, which means I can take care of myself. I can figure out if things don't work out, I can figure out how to make them work. So really it starts with that. And then I think it takes a lot of the sort of courage to go off the beaten path. Well, you know, the corporate world is kind of the beaten path. It's a well-trod path to carve out your own road, especially as a solopreneur, especially as a coach. You have to decide that you're willing to kind of step off the beaten path and then try and experiment. That takes an amount of maybe courage and preparing your mind to do that. I recommend that everybody have some financial cushion before they do that. And I had a little bit of financial cushion, which was helpful. Also, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids, right? So I didn't have a major expense I had to handle. And then I think for me, it was just figuring out what are the things I need to do to become a coach? So as I broke it down into like, I need to learn the craft. So I began to, you know, I took coach training and I really learned and practiced the craft of coaching. I realized I needed mentorship. So I hired my own coach and, you know, that kind of got me like sort of down the path of like, how do you set up a business? And then I had to learn the business of coaching. So like, how do I handle contracts and how do I handle kind of policies and how do I set up a company? So I think breaking things down is very helpful. And I found breaking things down in those ways helped me take steps forward, which ultimately created the flywheel, which I have now. Thank you. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about the inner journey now. Generally, people who coach for as long and as successfully as you have tend to have a sense of mission, and they also tend to have a very good understanding and sense of who they are. So I'm curious, what is your definition of authenticity, and what are some of the moments when you started to figure out what was your authenticity and how you wanted it to show up in the work that you do? Well, I think it's interesting you ask about authenticity. I think authenticity is like a double-sided coin. I think people think of authenticity as like, let it all hang out and just be me. And I'll just, I'll take a little detour to say that when I coach CEOs, either startup founders or large company CEOs, actually letting it all hang out is not the right answer. Actually, you have to play a role and that role is called CEO. And so you need to find your style, your style of playing that role. So it's an amalgam of like who you actually are and your authenticity, plus the mantle of the role, the expectations of the role, and understanding that there is, you know, sort of a, a lot of people around you looking to you to guide them. So that's about authenticity in the corporate world. I think for me, it goes back to that phrase I was talking about to make a difference. So when in my inner journey, and there were plenty of hard times and sort of starting up my business and oh, like for the first few years, I feel like I didn't draw a calm breath. I kept coming back to my own purpose. Like, why am I doing this? I'm doing this to make a difference. In any given day, in any given week, even though like, oh, I'm nervous or I don't know what's going on, what am I doing? I would still have these moments of making a difference for somebody. And that was very meaningful for me and gave me fuel to move forward. And so when I think about authenticity, it's about being able to have your purpose 
inside of you and letting that steer you as a North star. And I also think about letting your humanity out. Like we all have certain personalities and certain quirks and certain, you know, interesting ways around the edges that we show up. And I think showing up in those ways lets out your authenticity. Well, something you said really resonates with me, which is the idea that people confuse the term authenticity. Yeah. You know, authenticity means to be your true self, but there's a difference between showing your whole true self and understanding which part of your true self is appropriate to show up. At the same time, if you're a leader or a CEO, and there's a point where people can see that what's showing up is not true, that will impact their leadership. So I'm interested, given that you work with a lot of CEOs, what are some of the ways that you help them show up their true selves in their work with their teams, maybe open up more in places and making difficult choices in other moments? Yeah, it's a big question. It's a meaty question. I think first and foremost, I really help the CEOs I work with align with and connect to their values and their purpose. Because inside, you know, above and beyond all the corporate stuff and all the business stuff and the things we have to do, the CEOs I work with, and I feel like all leaders and I think all people have something inside of them that shows them their North Star. It gets lost in the muck and mire of every day. And I help them strip that back and just identify for themselves what's my core purpose and what are my core values. Which means that when they're doing anything, it's in service of that. So I then ask them to pause before high stakes meetings or all hands or you know other kinds of interactions, quick pause and remind themselves using a phrase, using a word, something of that purpose or of their values or what they're trying to get done. It's like helpful to have a, a phrase that they can really remember and bringing that into interactions, meetings, you know, communication and even kind of what they do. So I think that's like one tool that I use that I think is very helpful for them. The other thing I want to say is that CEOs can sometimes show up as fake and so can all of us. Part of that, I give people a lot of credit and a lot of room for that because all of us, when we are learning new skills, we kind of show up fake, right? We're over, we're overcorrecting, we're over-exaggerating. And we're learning, so we don't do it so well all the time. So I really think that to do a skill well, you first have to do it badly and give yourself permission to do it badly. And first of all, anyone who's listening, I would encourage you to think about the skills that you've learned that you started off kind of badly and then you got better at. And so CEOs also have to go through that learning journey of the things that they are building inside their repertoire. That's very good. And so going back to the authenticity, obviously it's very easy to be authentic and make decision where you're in a situation where the payoff is aligned with your value. But there are situations where you need to make trade-offs that are costly in order to, you know, stick to your core values, your truth, or how do you help a CEO who's navigating a choice like that navigate it? Well, I mean, I think any CEO any person, any leader, to your point, deals with difficult moments and has to make difficult choices. So I think the first way I would answer that question is to recognize that being in the world of business and leading a business requires you, it's part of the job, is that you're going to have to make difficult choices at some point. And so kind of making peace with that, I think, is the first step. The second thing I would say is that when you have to do difficult things, for example, a classic example of what you're talking about is a CEO 
having to do layoffs and having to keep that secret, but the CEO having real philosophy and value around transparency. That's like hard because you're keeping a secret and you're doing something very difficult, but you have this stated value and it's important to you to do, to be transparent. And so I think the thing you need to work through is to recognize that, right? At the end of the day, you're trying to do something in service of the business and you're trying to do hopefully the right thing. You're making the best choice you can about a difficult situation. So I think the you know, quote unquote transparency in that case would be once you do the layoff, in this case, I'm giving you an example, you talk to the existing employees, to the remaining employees, and really talk through what that was like for you, why that had to happen, and how you see the future going forward. And you can exercise your value of transparency, even in light of this difficult moment where you have to do things you don't like to do. Yeah, that's a very good example. Another example that I was thinking about, and it's something that you know you and I deal with as service provider, is you're we're facing services with working or being given the choice of working with clients that may not either align with our values or maybe not good for the practice. I'm wondering if there's any example that you would be willing to share of a situation where you decided to pass on a client and like sort of what would take you to pass on a client? I think there's a difference between passing on a client, like, no, I don't think we should work together, as compared to going down the path and recognizing it's not a fit. Here's what I really think. What I really think is when you first meet someone or you first come into an organization, you have no idea what's going on. You have like an initial feeling, right? Like, oh, maybe this, maybe that. In some ways, people may annoy you or you may think it's a certain way that's like not good. You may kind of judge it. But then over time, what you find is that there's a lot more complexity there, a lot more nuance there and a lot more even, you know, sort of positive there than you might have thought. And I'll ask everybody even to think about, and this has happened to me many times. Have you ever met somebody, this happened to me so many times, where you don't like them? You don't like them. And then they turn out to be a good friend, like down the road, because you've gotten to know them, you understand them better. Also, again, speaking for myself, they might trigger something in me that makes me feel threatened or defensive, or it brings out a shadow side of me that I don't like. And so overcoming my own personal like judgments and, you know, snap decisions for me has been part of my learning journey, my growing journey. So I don't, think, you know, when I first meet somebody, I am not going to have a snap judgment about whether or not I should or shouldn't work for them. Now, sometimes it's not a personality fit. It's like, fine. Sometimes they probably don't really need a coach like me, right? These days I kind of work with much more senior people. Sometimes, you know, a company will say, will you work with this like super junior person? And I kind of think I can't really have the impact that I want there. And they probably would benefit from a different kind of coach. So there's that. But I'll, I'll even go back to your other questions. Like, when do you part ways with a client? I have over time, there was one in particular I'm thinking about that was, um, they were in uh, Southern California and I worked with this group of people, four or five people inside of executive team inside of the company. Part of my job was to help them overcome what was actually kind of a toxic environment. And for a period of time, we made progress and that was great. And then, I don't know, we kind of came to the end of the road with their progress and not only were we not making any more progress, but they were actually backsliding. 
And so at some point on the flight home from Southern California one day, I was like, you know what? I think that this is the end of the road for me. Like maybe they have a lot more in their lives to grow and develop. Maybe another coach would be able to help. But I see that I am no longer able to help here. And as soon as I got home, I called them and I said, I think we should end the contract. I really like how actually you reframe the question. And so thinking about how to give some practical advice to people who are listening. So what are, you know, if you're in a situation, you're an executive, you know, probably most likely in a service firm where you're thinking about a relationship with a client and you're trying to figure out where the relationship is, what are some of the things that people can look for to understand whether that's a repairable situation or where, you know, it is time to say, stop. Again, I'll, I'll sort of go back to the beginning. If you're engaging initially and you may have some triggers and reactions, I think it's really helpful to notice those triggers and reactions and ask yourself, I wonder where those are coming from inside of me. Like they may certainly be inside of the other person. Fine. But what if they're inside of you? And then just explore that, whether it's, you know, gives you some juice or not. The second thing is I always think about meeting my clients where they are. So recently I was this uh, retreat in Mexico and I saw a fellow coach there and he said, oh, I said, you know, my process is when I talk to somebody and then I, you know, we interact and then I give them a little assignment to tell if they're coachable or not. And if they come back with this assignment, I know they're coachable. And if they don't, they don't. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. After like, you know, an hour of a conversation, an email, you know, someone's coachable. I just don't proclaim to know if someone's coachable. I want to test and see if they're coachable. I want to see what conditions would make them coachable. I have vast number of tools. Which of my tools will help someone be coachable? That's kind of the way I think about it. So I really think it's very helpful to as much as possible, put yourself in the background and look at that human being across from you and ask like, what is going on over there? What's it like to be in that person's world? Join them in their world and see what it's like from their view and see what's possible for them inside of their view. And I, I really like, I encourage everyone to do that because it's also really good personal growth as you as a coach or you as a service provider. And then, you know, separately, yeah, as you go down the path, you're doing the best you can, you're making progress, you're not making progress. If you keep not making progress, maybe it's not the right assignment. If you keep feeling bad, you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I love this, I love this, I love it. Oh, I don't like this. And if it keeps feeling that way, that's a good question. Like you might want to explore that and maybe it's not the right situation for you. Thank you. That's great. You mentioned that in the course of your career, you accumulated a whole set of tools. So I'm curious, when you think about your leadership style, what are the core elements and, you know, how did you come to define it and, and articulate it the way that it is right now? Well, as a coach, I think of myself as a certain kind of leader, right? Because I lead from the side and I really walk the path with my clients. And what I really think that embodies my sort of overall philosophy is that I am a seeker of truth. You know, I just wrote this book. It's called From Startup to Grown Up. It's coming out in October. Throughout the book, I talk about these little anecdotes of what happens. And I sort of refer to myself as I am a seeker of truth and that's not the truth, right? Or I'm a seeker of truth. And so I was waiting to hear the truth. And so my, my leadership philosophy and my coaching philosophy is let's explore what's really there and beyond your defensiveness and beyond it's not fair and beyond it shouldn't have happened that way and beyond how you're afraid and beyond imposter syndrome, 
there is a, a sort of a, a real nugget of what's actually going on. And I want to go deep into that nugget and explore that nugget. And that's where I think all the fruit of coaching comes from. Well, since you mentioned the book, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share one of these anecdotes as a preview for our listeners. That would be my pleasure. Let me think. Well, one of the anecdotes I share in the book is what happens if you don't address issues inside of your executive team. So again, my book is called From Startup to Grown Up. It's about the growth of a founder to a CEO, somebody who's building a product to someone who's building a business. When you're building a product, you're a tinkerer, you got eight people around you, you're sort of like excited about building all the mechanics. When you're building a business, you have 100, 200, 500 employees, you have an executive team. And if you don't address issues and conflicts inside of your executive team, bad things happen. So I tell the story in my book about a CEO who was so angry about his head of product, right? He's like vice president of product would constantly tell him what he should do and who he should fire and was very, very adamant about sort of all the things, all his opinions. And the CEO that I worked with, very charming guy he wouldn't ever say, stop it, right? Or we already decided this, or no, I'm not gonna fire them just because they're getting on your bad side. He would just listen and the head of product would go on and on and on. And it was really, really, really draining for the CEO. So rather than address it with the head of product, he actually got to the point where he couldn't stand to be in the room with him. It was so like grating for him. He canceled the executive team meetings. He just canceled them. So they no longer got together as the executive team. And I sort of realized, well, you're not getting, you're not having an executive team meeting anymore, which is a very important meeting to review what's going on and talk about strategy and to sort of talk about progress of the company and deal with issues. I said, well, what's going on? He said, oh, we don't have time. I thought, that's ridiculous, <laughs> right? And then he said something like, um, there hasn't been much really news to share over the past two or three weeks, which again is like, so I tell him the book, like I just kind of waited to see what was going to happen next. And finally he said, I just can't stand to be in the room with him anymore. Now that is the truth. And that is satisfying. And now that's like the gritty, difficult thing that we actually have to deal with because, you know, the way we're going here is going to be a dysfunctional company. And how was that solved? Well, it got solved because first of all, you know, this is how I work with CEOs. First of all, he vented to me for about 20 minutes about all the issues. And he's right. Like, so, okay, I listened and I'm like, yes, 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 I am aware. And so when he expelled all that, I said, okay, so what do you want to do with this guy? Because you have a lot of choices here, but avoiding it is no longer an option. You've avoided it long enough. Well, I can't fire him. Okay, don't fire him. And by the way, he adds a lot of value. Okay, fine. What do you need to address with him? What truths do you need to tell him? So I role played with him to have a conversation with the head of product and they had a conversation and, you know, the CEO said, look, when I've told you no, it means no. And I can't stand that you keep coming back to me. I really can't stand it. It's got to really be that you stick with my decisions. Also, when you can't get along with your peers and you come and tell me to fire them, I promise you, I am not going to fire them. I'm going to from now evermore send you back to the peers and have you work it out yourself. I need you to handle it. And we're going to be having these meetings resuming. And I, I need you to be constructive. And if you're not, I'm not going to have you in the meeting anymore. Straight talk, man. Straight talk. And as I say in my book, he got about 80% better, but 80% is pretty good. Right. As I say, you know, it's better to get 100% of what's 80% right 
<laughs> than zero of what's 100% right. <laughs> That's right. That's from my old Bain background. You mentioned your book talks about founders who become CEOs. So there's a fascinating dynamic to me that I've always been interested in, and is the transition from a founder tinker to CEO is not always a natural transition and is not always a transition that makes a founder happy. How do you help people navigate that transition and figuring out whether, I'm wondering if you had a situation where you were helping somebody figuring out whether that's a transition that they wanted to embark on and then what steps you know they could take. If the answer was, I just want to build the product, you know, how do you help them make the transition and, and giving up their child company, if you will? Well, that that's certainly complicated. So first of all, as I say in my book, the first job is for you to really get clear with yourself and to tell the truth to yourself. Do you want to be the CEO? Because to your point, do you know, like, you know, the skills that are required to be a great founder are kind of exactly opposite the skills to, that are required to be a great CEO. So on the one hand, there's growth. On the other hand, sometimes it's like a personality change, right? And do you want to go through that growth? And are you willing to also let go of enough control to bring important people in that can complement your weaknesses if you do kind of want to go that path? So that's a whole discussion around kind of self-awareness and really figuring out, is this something you want to kind of go for? So there's one CEO, we were, I was coaching him and, you know, the company was probably getting to be about, oh, I don't know, like, let's say 50 million annual revenue kind of going to, you know, like a hundred and, and north of a hundred. And he just really got that everything he was coming in to do every day did not, it drained him. It did not bring him joy, you know, dealing with people challenges, hiring and recruiting top talent you know, dealing with the executive team and running a budget, like, and constantly thinking about these things, he really wanted to focus on the product and so-called, as he always said, like delighting, like he delight, that's what he was into. And so we talked together about what is the right role. And he made what I think is the courageous decision to move to being the chief product officer and bringing in a CEO. And they did not always have a great relationship of the CEO he brought in, but he always respected and noticed, realized that this was the person who was going to bring us to the next level company-wise, but that he was the one, the founder was the one who could bring the company to the next level from the point of view of invention. And that was his highest and best use. That's great. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you are talking to a very unique group of people as your clients, which are founders and CEOs of startups in a growth moment. What's the perspective from that crowd right now as we're transitioning out of the pandemic? What are some of the challenges that startups are facing and what are some of the solutions that your clients are thinking about? Well, everybody right now is thinking about back to office, right? Everybody right now is thinking about what's our version now of work. Is it in person back in the office? Is it a hybrid? Is it remote, you know, remote first or remote only? A number of my clients are really thinking about how do we reinvent the notion of hybrid? Now, that's really hard to do because it actually requires a lot of technology upgrades. Like it requires some principles and process upgrades as in, if we are going to be so-called hybrid, and if we're going to have a number of folks who are in the office together on a certain day, but then some folks on video, should we all be on video? 
right? Because then the dynamics are kind of like evens the playing field. Or does that make no sense? We should be in the room together if we're all there together. Or, so that does just one choice to think about. Another choice to think about is what is even the notion of the office? One of the clients I'm working with is thinking about the office as a place to come and collaborate and hang out, not a place to come every day. And they actually are thinking much more about, you know, how you sort of think about you can work from the office four days a week and one day from home. They're thinking about you can work from the office four days a week from home and one day in the office. So what does that mean for that one day? And what do you want to set up to make that work? Because the truth is that in-person interaction occasionally and periodically bonds the team, which is important when you're trying to get work done through others. And like meeting someone in person is really important and powerful for your relationship. And that helps you then work remotely for the next you know weeks and months. So I think everyone's thinking about that. I think also, you know, there's a lot of talk about career right now, people being more comfortable, like leaving their jobs. It's so there's been articles about the great resignation. And a lot of my clients are also thinking about career mobility. How do we offer people opportunities inside of this company so that we can retain our top talent longer? Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. We are entering a phase of recovery and hopefully growth. And as we have seen in the past two big recoveries after the dot-com bust and after the mortgage crisis, in this phase is the war on talent, so-called, becomes really crucial. So what are some of the ways that your clients are thinking about dealing with how they retain and how they acquire good talent? Yeah, well, the first answer is culture. Because there's a question of if you can sort of hold pay constant, then why do people come to a company? They like the people, they align with the culture, the culture is consistent, and you can put forward a consistent kind of message around culture and values. You know, the Corporate Leadership Council did a number of studies, you know, doing studies for decades about what helps people stay, why, why do people overperform and stay with companies for a long time? And one has to do with faith and leadership. And one has to do with clarity around value. So even if I am joining a company and the company doesn't exactly share my values, exactly mirror my values, or I don't mirror the company's values, the clarity of the company's values is actually very significant and helps employees stay longer because they just feel like they're more secure and like more predictable in terms of what's going on around here. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is, again, lots of ways that people value, they get value out of their career has to do with career laddering, feeling that they're being coached and developed and mentored, feeling like they have a career path, feeling like this career mobility, so they are able to move through a number of different things that may interest them. All of those things help retain talent. I think attracting talent is kind of in this similar ways, right? Those kinds of benefits accrue to people who want to join a company. That's great. And these are definitely issues that affect any company, not just startups. So whether it's a large corporation or even a non-for-profit. So I think we've provided a lot of really good business value for our listeners. Um, let's switch to the personal side. What are some of your passions and interests outside of work? And how do they show up in your work life and maybe even enhance it? One thing, since I post my videos on Facebook and Instagram, it's well known about me that I'm obsessed with kettlebells. And so for me, being physically fit and being strong is an important metaphor for life, right? So how do you have inner strength and outer strength? I've learned a lot through my journey of strength, as in what happens when you don't feel like doing it, 
right? I work out with an incredible coach. You know, it's just funny because I worked out with him this morning. And for whatever reason, this whole week, I work out with him now because we're remote. I used to work with him four days a week, which was like the joy of my life. And now I work out with him two days a week on video. And both days this week, I did not feel like doing what we were going to do. <laughs> I really didn't like. I didn't feel like any of it. I didn't feel like any of it. And, you know, we work out for an hour. 55 minutes in, I felt like it, right? 55 minutes in. So that's like a metaphor for life, right? Like you've got to sort of put yourself into the environment and try and go through the motions. And Tom LaFerre is my coach and he is supremely positive and is constantly pointing out to me what I'm doing right super like fun. Like I, I like being with him. And so we've built this relationship so that I trust him and I will do what he says, even when I don't feel like doing it. Well, that he's taught me a lot about coaching and about the power of positive feedback, the power of pointing out what's going great and what is going well, like problems, problems everywhere, but some things are going really well. And definitely through my own experience, I've been able to also share with others Hey, I don't, I know you don't feel like it. You're not going to feel like it until you're doing it. So let's just do it. I really like the, what you're saying about Tom, because I think something that I also do with my clients is try to get them sort of in a position in the middle, right? Yeah. You don't want to stay away from what's going wrong, but start by reminding everything that you've done right up to now. Enjoy the fact that you have done that, you know, give yourself credit for doing that and then look at everything that's going wrong as the opportunity of what you need to learn. So do not get overconfident for your success, but do not beat yourself up because of the work that's ahead of you. And I think that metaphor of being in a training session is actually a great metaphor for that. Yeah. One time I attempted a pretty heavy overhead lift and I failed and I was a little like shaken and he said so calmly and actually quite cheerfully, like, oh, good. Now we see where the work is. <laughs> I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. That is such a great phrase. Next question. This is my favorite question of the whole podcast. What is the one business cliche or business term or expression that drives you crazy and makes you want to rip your hair out? Oh, I love this one because actually I was interviewed on the BBC about business jargon. And so like, this is like my sweet spot because I have a lot to say about business jargon. But in this case, I'm going to tell you that my, the one that drives me crazy is it's a combo. People say that person has to step up. What do you mean step up? And they go, you know, step up to the plate. <laughs> I'm like, no, I just, no, you did not just explain that. Like, just so you know, that was not any more clear. <laughs> that is a great, great example of like overused sports metaphors. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like, I just want to say, like, I admire the intent. I understand that you're asking for more from this person. But when you tell me step up, step up to the plate, then I know that you actually don't know what you want. And you need to take 15, 20, 30 minutes to think through specifically what stepping up would look like. Because it looks like a whole bunch of different things to different people. And until you clarify that, it's just jargon, to your point. That's a great example. And then final question is, I have a question that I call either food for your soul or food for your body. So it's your call. You can share either a recipe or a drink that you really love, or if you want to go to the food for your soul, a book, a piece of music, a piece of art, a movie, whatever you, you go to sort of like to nourish your soul. 
So many things. I'm going to talk about two of those things. For food, I make this cauliflower dish, which is so delicious. And it's like, I love cauliflower because it's so nutritious. I like it anyway. And it's so nutritious. So I feel so, I have such moral high ground. It has olives in it and it's roasted and delicious. And I make it for my bow and my bow loves it. And it makes me so happy that I'm like, I don't make it all that often. But when I do make it, I'm like offering him like made with love this, you know, sort of delicious and beautiful cauliflower dish. So that is both nourishing and also quite delicious. And there's so much to say about music and books and art. But I will say, when I feel a little down, a song that always lifts up my spirits is uh, the Indigo Girls Closer to Fine. And the reason is because I'm a word girl. So some of the words there have to do with, you know, the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to fine. I love that. That is a fabulous way to close our conversation, Elisa. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you for your wisdom. And I can't wait to read your book when it comes out. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It was great to spend time with you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating, leave a review, tell a friend, actually tell a bunch of friends, subscribe to your favorite platform and post about it in social media. If you like music, stick around because at the end of the credits, as usual, I'm going to share another song by my wife, Susan Catania, who is one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. If you want to work with Aliza or just see what she has to say, she uses her name for all of her digital assets. Aliza, spelled A-L-I-S-A, Cohn, spelled C-O-H-N. So our site is alisacohn.com. Twitter and Instagram are at alisacohn. And on LinkedIn, she's linkedin.com backslash in backslash Aliza Cohn. And finally, Facebook backslash Aliza.cohn. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can also email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Dino Cattaneo. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. I was thrilled to hear that Aliza is a big fan of lyrics in song, because lyrics are one of the things that Susan is known for. She has actually taught lyric writing and songwriting at Berklee College of Music for 20 years. So, for this song, I chose a song where I felt her writing was particularly good. It's a song called Revival, and it's a song that talks about the intersection between faith and make-believe. So here it is, Revival.
Truth and make believe. 